Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join me on yet another sunny but empty day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct uh, perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Rob Cole, owner of Sheffield Sustainable Kitchens, a Sheffield-based manufacturer that supplies and fits a range of high-quality bespoke kitchens using materials from environmentally friendly sources. Rob, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming on the program today. Um, normally, we'd get straight into the subject of leadership. However, considering the current situation, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you how COVID-19 is affecting your business. Uh, at the moment, we've um, it's been obviously had a huge impact on the business. Um, we've uh, I've got 15 staff normally. Um, I've furloughed all but three of those staff at the current situation, so I've still got a few designers working. Everyone else is on hold, really, because we can't really... Um, do any site work at the moment and even having people in the workshop is not really uh, possible with the current right. uh, current constraints but we are you know we're still uh, I'm, I'm confident that we'll you know we'll get through this crisis it's been very challenging um, but um, yeah it could be worse <laughs> and have you had changes in your uh, order book or have things remained relatively constant um, we've had uh, inquiries have dropped off quite significantly um, since the start of the crisis. But um, our order book, we had a very good march in spite of um, the sort of impending uh, impending crisis and sort of developing crisis. Um, so we had a good sort of uh, set of orders, although um, some of the orders we've had haven't we haven't quite managed to get the money out of in spite of them agreeing to go ahead. So it's there's a bit of a, a delay there, which is understandable again, I think, given the current crisis. But I think. Once things look a bit more settled, that should settle down, I think. Do you believe that this is going to have a long-term effect on not only your business, but also other businesses in Sheffield? I think this is going to have a huge effect on everything. You know, I think I don't think that we're going to be in the same world when we come out of this crisis. Um, and I think how that is different is yet to be seen to some degree, but I think there's going to be a massive impact on, on businesses. I think a lot of businesses are going to... Um, going to end up going out of business unfortunately um, I think it's proving quite difficult to access the help packages that are available from the government things like the business, uh, coronavirus business interruption loans seem to be virtually impossible for anyone to get their hands on certainly from my network of other business people I, I'm, I'm not aware of anyone who's actually managed to get any money out of that scheme yet um, and lots of people who are sort of hitting brick walls left right and centre um, <clears throat> And I think, you know, if that help doesn't become available, there's businesses already probably going, uh, you know, going out of business as it is. And I think there's many more will, will suffer the same fate. I think many will survive as well and will come out the other side stronger and probably different as well. I'm sure we'll see much more um, flexible working. We might see people working fewer hours, I suspect, quite in quite a lot of uh, places across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think a lot more remote working as well, inevitably. Now, of course, there's an argument to be made that this has seen a, a tremendous um, ramp up in the authority of the state in private business. Uh, do you believe uh, that this is a detrimental uh, thing or do you believe that uh, we will have a chance of getting back at normal after this is over? Um, <clears throat> the authority of the state within business is an interesting one. I mean, I think um, 
there's a changing world in that sense a bit anyway in that um, we've got things like the um, HMRC have got um, making tax digital so they've got much more tapped into information within the businesses anyway with the stuff with the current crisis I do feel like a lot of that will probably end up being temporary with the changes that are going on at the moment I think things will normalise again afterwards on some of that stuff but I think we might even you know we might need to sort of fight to to make that happen if that makes sense rather than just sort of you know I suppose if, if things are left to their own devices then there is a chance that um, the state will sort of keep a lot of um, well, control. Well, it does, into, it does into seem in these sorts of situations that, uh, you know, in emergency situations, governments tend to take on a lot of extra authority. And then it's an elastic situation after the crisis has passed. It, it reduces, but it never quite goes back to what it was prior to the incident. And, uh, you know, some people who are worried about uh, civil liberties being infringed uh, can get quite concerned that it won't ever go back to its pre-crisis levels. But I guess that's something left to be seen. Um, yeah. Now, Rob, uh, on the leadership front, I always like to start the conversation off by asking a very simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? I think the word leader means all sorts of things to me. Um, I mean, <clears throat> for me, the thing I mean, I've sort of made some notes. On this, I've written down things like listening, supporting, developing those around you and that um, that you're leading. Um, for me, legitimacy is really important. I think in order to be legitimate in, as a leader in the modern world, you need to be sort of multi-value. You need to have honesty, integrity, ethics, sustainability, I think is really key for modern leaders because, um, you know, it's such an important issue that we face as society. If, if people see that you don't have that as an element, then, then, then that's going to erode your legitimacy. And I think that's one of the problems we've seen with the erosion of legitimacy in the power of our politicians as well and I think the, the erosion of trust of, of politicians as well that we've seen and, and I think we need to you know we need to move to a new type of leader I think both politically and in business and throughout society that, that holds these multi-values um, so that they, they do have that legitimacy. And of course, um, uh, you you very much are committed to sustainability. It's part of your it's part of your business's name. In fact, how do you go absolutely. about uh, keeping um, the materials sustainable that you use in the construction of uh, of these kitchen units? So we use a whole range of um, interesting materials. So we use a lot of high recycled content materials. So um, things like we use a recycled timber board, which has got one hundred percent recycled timber that goes into it, and we make a lot of our cabinets out of that. And we also use um, recycled glass for worktops, so that's sort of 90% crushed up glass that would have otherwise gone to landfill, that's then set into a resin and that gets turned into worktops. Absolutely beautiful material. And we use some recycled paper materials also for worktops. Again, sort of layers of paper that are then impregnated with a resin. And then we use a lot of um, a lot of local timber, so timber that's come down within you know 20 or 30 miles of Sheffield that's been coming down, you know, the tree has been coming down anyway for for other reasons and then the, the tree's been logged up and we've turned that then into new doors and shelving and cabinets and all sorts and then we also use a lot of reclaimed timber as well so one of the nice materials we use is um, old school science lab benches um, mm -hmm. we'll take those when schools are getting refurbished or um, knocked down and rebuilt and we'll turn those into new worktops and shelving sometimes handles all sorts and that's beautiful beautiful timber it comes into us and it's covered in graffiti <laughs> and we plane it down and sand it down, and it's absolutely beautiful when it goes back out the door again. You'd never know it'd been abused by hundreds of children over over years and years with bumps and burners and uh, all sorts of else. And, uh, uh, well, absolutely. a new lease of life. 
Absolutely. How many frogs have been amputated on on those on those countertops? Um, now, when it comes to uh, hardened materials, uh, how do you sustain? The, uh, how do you uh, source those sustainably, such as uh, granite or marble or that sort of uh, thing? Um, we actually tend to avoid um, granite and marble. So, I mean, I, I mean, there's an ethical argument in that as well. In that, you know, there's, there's been links to child slavery um, with granite in India, and a lot of the a lot of those things come from way, way around the far side of the world. And things like the recycled glass products that we use is a great sort of eco alternative to that. Um, you know, we do sometimes use local stone. That's, that's you know, so um, UK slate, for example, um, is something we've used. And that's a beautiful material, but we try and avoid stuff that's getting shipped in from all over the world. It's not, you know, it's a finite resource and often it's, you know, it's been um, quarried under quite questionable circumstances as well. Now, of course, uh, that that would definitely be the case and it could be the case in places such as India, as you, as you mentioned. But uh, that they are also mined in, in places such as the United States where, where they have strict uh, labor laws. Uh, would you look into trading uh, with places such as that, or is that still a non uh, a non starter as to the um, the transport issue? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of timber comes out of the United States as well, as well as the um, you know there might be stone that comes from there as well. But we tend to try and avoid stuff that's travelled a long distance. You know, part of the game for us is trying to reduce the um, transportation miles wherever we can as well. Um, and I think where we've got alternatives to those. Um, we will use them as well. So. Hmm. Well, it's a very interesting concept, and I wish you the best of luck with it. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> our time together is drawing to its close. Uh, but before I let you go, uh, Rob, what does the next 12 months have in store for Sheffield Sustainable Kitchens? Um, we've got some fairly extensive growth plans. I mean, this is this may be slightly curtailed by the or slowed down by the current crisis, but we're, we're planning to move into larger, larger premises, expand the world's workforce, bring more of our manufacturing in-house as well. And we're trying to spread our wings a bit further, so not just Sheffield, looking at sort of working more in Manchester and Leeds and, and beyond as well. Um, we've got, you know, we've got a unique product that, um, you know, I think there's a wider audience out there that would love to get their hands on it. So. Well, Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you today, and I very much hope that you can come back on the program when things have got back to normal. We can have a more in-depth conversation. Rob, thank I'd you. I'd love to. Thank you. Cheers. That was Rob Cole, owner of Sheffield Sustainable Kitchens. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of was it wasn't Marcus Rescothi who gave me that nickname? Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place. 
and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, 
Um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you right. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment; that was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th- there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it. 
for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the 
all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players, but actually I found it a very different challenge because you are, so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves, mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know even when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of. Uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses number one to 
fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know, it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um absolutely. no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, 
that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.